Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very exciting founder, a founder that has done it multiple times. I think that we're going to be hearing from his own journey, the good, the bad, and the ugly, because we all know that building and scaling companies is not a straight line. So uh, without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Chris Hayes. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. I appreciate it. So how was life growing up in Rhode Island? It was great. You know, I grew up on the water, spent a lot of time surfing outside, just being a kid. It was just fantastic. So tell me, how did you become so obsessed with the financial markets? You know, it's a good question. As I look back on my childhood, if you talked to me in fifth grade, I probably would have told you I was going to be a stockbroker. I remember the stock crash of 1987. I was 13 years old and I somehow figured a way with my paper route money to go out and buy shares of GE, IBM, and AT&T. So, of course, I didn't keep them, which would have been a good decision. But, uh, you know, I think I was just fascinated with the whole thing, the stock market, publicly traded, the ups and downs of the companies. It was kind of a passion when I was a kid. And obviously, combining that, too, with the entrepreneurial spirit, because you were selling skateboard parts, you know, back in seventh grade. Is that right? I had a number of very strange businesses when I was a kid, which is not to overstate their success. I think the uh, the success was limited, uh, but the intent was was certainly there. There was skateboard parts. There was uh, <laughs> trying to convince my mom in the 80s to open a video store and researched all the suppliers and did all that. But it turns out that a school psychologist is not best oriented to opening a video store then. But, you know, Blockbuster did buy them all, so I think I was on trend. Yeah. So, and, and in this case, I mean, how did you get this entrepreneurial buck? Was it anyone in your family or, or all of a sudden this, this was just happening to you? You know, it's funny. I, I don't know the answer. If I were forced to guess, I would tell you it was innate. My, my grandfather started a law firm uh, probably in the mid-50s and has since become kind of a third-generation law firm, small country firm in Cape Cod that my family runs. Um, but, you know, as I look back, I was sort of just, I always had a new idea. You know, I was an investment banker, and I had this import-export business from Bali and Indonesia. Uh, didn't sell much, but enjoyed the trip. So I, I sort of always had the bug, as, as long as I can look back, uh, you know, on my track record. And in your case, obviously, skiing got you to Denver. 
where you really got your your degree there in finance. But literally after after getting your degree and getting out there and thinking that you were going to be tackling what you were always thinking, that it would be your future, which it was really Wall Street, ended up taking a different turn. So tell us about this. Well, so I got through college. You know, I, I interned at Merrill Lynch and Raymond James, and I always expected I would go in that path. The more I learned being in the trenches of, as a stockbroker, you know, the more I saw it as just selling. And it sort of did not occur to me that a 21-year-old would be the best person to advise grandma on her life's finances. Uh, so <laughs> I ended up taking a turn into investment banking that was a, a really good place for me at Boston Capital. But investment banking always gives you that nice visibility and approach on, on transactions and deal-making. Funny enough, some of the best founders that I interview, they have backgrounds either on investment banking or consulting. So why do you think investment banking makes or creates such great entrepreneurs? Well, you know, I think taking an M&A path, uh, which I did not, uh, Boston Capital is a, is a real estate firm. They're the second or third largest owner of multifamily properties. So, so we were in that segment. But, you know, broadly, I think that the M&A world is a great place to, to grow a career because it teaches you how to think critically about a business in different sectors, competitive landscape, durable competitive advantage, growth models. Uh, and they also teach you a work ethic because they break these kids in terms of the hours they work and always on. And, you know, I think it gives them an edge no matter what direction they end up taking. And for you, definitely give you, it gave you that push to get into building your own business, Wall Street Corporation. So what happened there? I was at Boston Capital for a few years. And, you know, this was in the go-go late 90s of, of internet companies. And I had a bunch of high school friends who were taking companies public and selling companies and all this stuff. And so ultimately, uh, there was a company called World Street that I discovered through a, a career office, and they were just a, a bunch of technologists right at the f intersection of financial technology um, and the financial markets, which I thought was super interesting and would be a high growth market. So when they got out of uh, build mode, simply doing software engineering, I got a call from someone in HR and they said, hey, look, you know, we're looking to kind of round out the founding team here, which they lose, used very loosely in terms of bringing more folks in. And I like to, I met with the CEO. I like to say I wasn't underprepared for it. I was not prepared for it, but I think <laughs> this guy, Bruce, just sort of saw something in me and said, what the heck, you know, this guy came from banking and I bet he can figure this thing out and we're going to put him in a seat and give him a phone and teach him what we're all about. And he's going to sink or swim on his own. Uh, and it ended up being just a phenomenal experience. What I was going to ask you here is that obviously not life altering, obviously from an outcome perspective, but at least life changing from a lessons learning perspective, because here the company was acquired by Thomson Reuters. And I'm sure that that gave you as well, because before you were doing it on the transactional side as an advisor, but here you were more like on the operator side and being able to see that full cycle. So what would you say that opened out for you from a visibility perspective from this experience? You know, what I saw there, uh, there, were, there were three founders. I worked very closely with them. And what I saw there firsthand is someone can have an idea and have enough passion and tenacity around it and 
raise the money, understand the market, deliver into the market, sell, grow a business, grow a team, and you know, sort of make the dream happen. So it it, it took it from a theoretical, uh, you know, let's say a case study where someone you know has an idea, starts a business, and has a wonderful exit, and it actually made it real world. And and working with a lot of the people that I did. Uh, was super, super formative in terms of letting me understand sort of internally, you know, that I could do this one day on my own, you know, being the guy starting the company. And talking about life-changing experiences, because after this, you went to the McGregor Group, and that was a pretty amazing outcome. What, what were you doing there exactly? Tell us about this. That, that was a great, great stop along the way. So they were pioneers in so-called electronic trading of stocks and bonds, you know, that's a business that used to happen exclusively on paper. And, uh, you know, now everyone knows is the world of high frequency trading and stuff like that. So I had an opportunity uh, with the CEO. They hadn't sold a deal in, I think, two or three years. Some of my friends said I was nuts to uh, to take the position there. And they, they brought me in and I ran global sales and marketing. Uh, we restructured the team. We built a team. Uh, we had offices throughout the world. And we ended up closing 50 or 60 deals with big insurers, institutional asset managers, and hedge funds, uh, and ultimately sold the company to Investment Technology Group. So it was super fun. I mean, uh, my best friend in childhood worked there um, from childhood. And, you know, it was a wonderful experience across the board, culturally, educationally. And then, you know, at the time, uh, with the financial outcome, uh, you know, I thought it was all the money in the world at that stage of my life. <laughs> I mean, obviously, a $350 million deal. So enough zeros to get anyone dizzy. Chris. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was, you know, it was it was certainly a good exit. I mean, the uh, we had great investors. It was five times top line, 11 times bottom. And uh, it was a wonderful business. I spent a year at Investment Technology Group who acquired the company and learned a little more and then ultimately decided you know, I think in general, history repeats itself. And so what I was trying to figure out is how can you take the technology and the advances that we have seen on Wall Street and apply it to less sophisticated asset classes? And that's where the idea for fluid trade happened, which was um, the company I started after McGregor. So let's talk about fluid trade. Tell us about how you really brought this idea to life. Yeah, so fluid trade was was cool. I, I after we sold McGregor, um, I started a little consulting group, Northlinks Group, for a minute. I was doing that. Had this idea. Uh, I was renting space from my co-founder with that, and I called him one night and I said, "God, you're not going to believe this. You know, they trade like nine billion dollars a year in delinquent credit card debt using Excel spreadsheets, and you have all of these sophisticated financial buyers." buying off of spreadsheets. I said, we should create a marketplace that uses technology as the underpinning for people to bid, buy, have it secure. And that was the seed that started that company. So then tell us about what were the early days like? So they were super exciting, super hard. Uh, and I was a first time CEO. And, uh, you know, I think with it comes problems that you don't make again as a CEO. So we built a pretty good team. We raised some institutional money. We had a big customer. We were sort of an exchange in a box, which could be used for many different asset classes. Delinquent debt was our first, but we were involved in wireless spectrum and 
uh, scrap metal, all sorts of big asset spaces that were much less sophisticated than Wall Street. And ultimately, where that led, and this was in 0809, which you may remember had this uh, small little Great Recession, uh, <laughs> we had a term sheet from Royal Bank of Canada and probably five months of diligence and uh, legal negotiations. And they decided on the night before funding uh, that they were not going to move forward with the deal. So tell us about that moment. I mean, make us be insiders there. I mean, that moment where you receive a call, who calls you? I get a call from Rob Antonitis, wonderful guy. And I was at a hotel in New York City. I lived in Boston at the time. And I assumed we were set to close the deal the next day. And, you know, I thought he was calling just to, you know, dot an I across a T or, or say something. And, and he led in with this preamble, which I initially knew was a, a big punch. And he said, Chris, we've never done this before. Uh, I've never seen Royal Bank of Canada do this. These are unprecedented financial times that we're having. Capital markets are worried. And we have made the very difficult decision that we are not going to be funding your deal tomorrow. Wow. So what happened next? Oh, man, that hurt. Um, at the time, I would have probably told you it was the biggest knockdown uh, that I had had professionally, uh, which was probably true. You know, what we did then, and it was a sign of the times, we had a certain amount of money in the bank, probably three or four months of burn. We decided that we would furlough employees, stop the burn, give them more equity, and try and reassess our situation in the market and try and get funding. Obviously, if you're on your last dollar, you are certainly not going to get the best terms that you could from, uh, from venture players. And we, we had a, a fairly involved venture experience in terms of the process. So we had a number of firms that we could have gone to at that point you know, to try and reconstitute a deal. So did you have to shut down the business or, or what ended up being the outcome? Well, the outcome was that we had to shut down the business. We weren't able to get funding. Uh, sadly, we had a CTO that decided it, it might be a good idea to uh, try and work for our biggest customer as opposed to sticking it out with us. That created its own issues, as you can well imagine. Yeah. And ultimately, the, the company just wasn't able to survive financially, which was super painful. I can't imagine. So I, you know, from those experiences is really where you get to learn. And I guess where you get to transform yourself and in, in, as a human being, not just a professional or even an entrepreneur. So I guess what, what would you say was the lesson there to be learned, you know, by you from this experience? So there were a lot of them. You know, I deal with a lot of startup folks and entrepreneurs now. I, I think the single most critical skill that they can have that can make virtually any business idea work is tenacity and sticking with something and not giving up. And that's quite literally what we did with Altenex, which is the company that came from the ashes of that fluid trade experience. Uh, you know, we just continued fighting, swinging, building, raising money, looking for customers, just never stopping. And uh, apparently fate was on our side. And uh, it turned into a, a very interesting outcome. So then let's talk about Altenex. So Altenex, your next baby. So tell us about this marketplace for renewable energy. Sure. Well, we ended up, when we sold the company to Edison International, we had a 96% market share. But you know what I think was sort of most interesting is when we started the company, there was only one Fortune 500 company on planet Earth who had done a large offsite 
renewable energy transaction, and that was Google. Now, Google did that by registering with FERC, so in essence, becoming a utility. We knew that that was not going to work for the average Fortune 500 company. So the first thing we did is we hired the guy who started Google Energy, who became a wonderful friend and a super smart guy. And we tried to figure out how can we get the Fortune 500 to be able to do large off-site renewable energy. At the time, all they were doing was on-site little solar car parks and things like that. And ultimately, we were able to invent a, a contract called a virtual power purchase agreement which has become the industry standard to allow large-scale corporate purchases of off-site renewables. And, you know, probably the single most exciting thing with that company is, you know, we did 4 or $5 billion in deals, but, you know, when you look at the carbon abatement and what it has actually done for the planet Earth and, you know, taking coal and natural gas offline, uh, it feels really good, you know, to build something that had that impact. Absolutely. And in this case, obviously, you had learned a little bit the whole uh, stuff with the term sheets and with getting, you know, outside investors. But in Altanex, it was a little bit different this time around. I mean, you definitely avoided the VC model. And, you know, it's funny how in many instances, everyone thinks that the venture model is like the holy grail, you know, being another company on TechCrunch announcing that you've raised so much money from a tier one VC. But but funny enough, most of the founders that actually receive venture money walk away with nothing, you know, with all the craziness around the liquidation preferences and, and things like that. So so how do you guys go about financing Altanix? Well, right. So the saying I use there is the house always wins, right? And venture is a wonderful tool for people that have no other financial outlet. But look, the reality is after getting left at the altar, in a six or eight month process, the night before funding, we just decided we were not going to pursue venture. So what we did is we did, we, we funded the company out of pocket. We were flying around, Dow Chemical became our first so-called charter advisory board member while we were simultaneously raising money. Um, and we ended up getting just very lucky through our network. Um, we, we raised exclusively, we sold 17% of the company, we raised exclusively through ultra high net worths, but they were strategic. These were people that were on the boards of Walmart, Chubb, Microsoft, Liberty Mutual. And, you know, they invested, the terms were great. Uh, there were minority rights only. We had a tremendous amount of control. Uh, they invested in common right alongside us. Um, and they ended up being, you know, they're wonderful guys, but they ended up being, you know, real partners with us. And, and as you can imagine, they, they put some money into Alturas, the, the next company that we started. Absolutely. I mean, I believe that here what they made was a 74% IRR, you know, on the on the investment. So so not bad at all for them. And one event that was really interesting was when a key sponsor at Microsoft was walking around with Steve Ballmer. You know, a really interesting <laughs> conversation sparked. So what was that conversation? <laughs> so let me set, set the scene very quickly. Startup company, no revenue a couple of good customers, Microsoft being a great one. We had tremendous support from their head of energy management. We had an offsite renewable energy deal, papered, ready to go, fully negotiated. It was a company maker of a deal. And we were set to close on a Monday. I get a call on Monday morning and this gentleman, Brian says to me, so it turns out 
Steve Ballmer doesn't believe in insurance, and I position this deal as a way to insure against our rising energy costs, and the deal's dead, and I'm sorry, but uh, we're not going to be able to do it. Wow. How do you how do you recover from that? I mean, you know, <laughs> I guess it has to go back to tenacity because as I look back, we were with the team in our boardroom when the call, call came in. I'll never forget. It started out, as it turns out, Steve Ballmer, dot, dot, dot. You know, what we did there is we took the hit, we rebuilt. And ultimately, what we did is is reposition with our sponsor there, who turned into a wonderful friend. And I think we did about a billion dollars in deals just with Microsoft. And we positioned it the way we think all companies should look at renewable energy as a cheaper way to buy power on a long-term basis. You know, these are typically 15 or 20-year deals. And while power might be cheap today through traditional sources, having a small portion of someone's power portfolio management spend um, being fixed and controlled um, at the cost that renewables at, are at now makes a tremendous amount of sense. So ultimately, we, uh, you know, it had a happy ending in that we closed several deals with them. So in this case, after the rodeo with Altenex, it was the turn for the next, the next rodeo, and the next rodeo was Alterus. So tell us about Alterus. Sure. So, you know, ultimately, uh, ultimately with Altenex, we sold NRG 33% and then sold the, the whole company to Edison International, the utility that owns Southern California Edison. Great, great group of people. Um, so, you know, we left there. We had to figure out what was next. We were in a super enviable position in that we did not have to rush to do anything. And my partner and I sort of looked at the landscape and we said, look, what do we want to do when we grow up? You know, what's going to give us purpose? Uh, what do we think can be successful um, and enjoyable at the same time? And we said, hey, you know what? Working with the Fortune 1000 was a great experience. And while we were only doing large offsite renewable energy, all of these energy managers would come to us and say, hey, you know, do you do anything on site? Is there any way you can lower our energy costs? you know, through better lighting or HVAC or management systems. And so my partner and I decided, you know what, let's, let's start this thing up. It, it's a new, new space called Energy as a Service. And we're going to have it as our second act, you know, continuing to make the earth a better place, a little carbon abatement. But ultimately, what we're doing is helping the balance sheets of these Fortune 500 companies. And, you know, you go to these firms and say, hey, I can give you guaranteed cost savings and no upfront costs. And if you're a publicly traded company, that's going to get your attention. And that's what we've been doing. It's been super, super fun. We just closed on $600 million in equity. So we're fully funded and fired up. And we've got a bunch of great customers who have been saying good things about us in the press. So we're excited. So then how, how does that work? I mean, what's the, the business model? I mean, you said that you just got the $600 million. So So how do you put those $600 million to work? That's a lot of millions. <laughs> well, it is, particularly when you consider that 90 to 95% of a deal is debt, right? Yeah. So so that, that makes it in the billions. But, you know, we provide infrastructure advisory and financing services to large energy users. So in English, what that means is we help them with energy efficiency, storage, water conservation. We, we buy all the equipment, we own and operate it, and they pay us a monthly service fee 
And what that does is, you know, we handle all the project costs, performance risk, maintenance services, but the beauty for them is they get off balance sheet accounting treatment and, you know, it's treated as a service expense and they can focus on their core business and, you know, leave all of the the building management system stuff to us. So it's pretty compelling. We think, you know, really where this is going is much like cloud computing. You know, 15 years ago, if you were any Fortune 500 company, you managed your server farm and you considered that your most critical data. Um, And now all of a sudden the idea of doing that, you know, with Microsoft, Azure and Iron Mountains of the world, uh, it would be ridiculous to manage that yourself. We think that's where the puck is headed in terms of energy assets for these big Fortune 500s. Let, let companies focus on, you know, making consumer products or cars or steel and let someone else manage your energy assets, do it better, cheaper, faster, and just pay a service fee uh, that's an operating expense rather than a capital expense. So let's say, Chris, that you go to sleep tonight and you wake up five years later. So you haven't slept like that always in your whole life, right? But you wake up in a world where your vision for Altruist is fully realized. What does that world look like? Cloud computing for, for energy infrastructure assets. So you get all of these Fortune 500 companies, and they have outsourced all of the ownership, operations, management, and services associated with all of that equipment. And they let some geek like us deal with all of it. And they write a check every month and they have huge carbon abatement because most of these companies are operating on 10, 15, 20 year old equipment uh, that is totally outdated in terms of its energy usage. But why is a company going to want to use their cost of capital to, to upgrade infrastructure when they can do share buyback and research and development and all of that? So, you know, I think that whether it's through all tourists, and I think we're going to have a great market share in that space, I just do think it is a better way for the Fortune 500 to manage their energy assets. And there's no question that it's better for the environment in terms of carbon abatement and using less power. So in terms of like the typical customer that you guys would have, I mean, this is all Fortune 1000 companies. Is that is that right? It is. Berry Plastics is a customer. They have been very vocal about us in the press. And we are taking a strategic view of their whole uh, energy efficiency programs. And so we design solutions that are deployed at scale. So they require no upfront capital and we do it all under an energy services agreement. But the point is, um, you know, we upgrade all of their their infrastructure. So HVAC, lighting, building management systems, assembly lines, things like that. Very cool. Very cool. So now let's say that we were able to get you, Chris, in this time machine. So you go into this time machine and you're able to go back in time. We're literally going back to that moment where you literally created your very first company. I mean, even even before that, even before, let's say, Wall Street, right? Before Wall Street Corporation, you're, you're at Boston Capital, your first gig, you're thinking maybe, you know, like doing something on your own. So if you had the opportunity to go to that moment and speak with that Chris, Knowing what you know now, I mean, now you've been through the ringer. You've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly of entrepreneurship. If you were able to go back in time and have a chat with that younger self and give yourself one piece of business advice for launching a company, what would that be and why, given what you know now? Turn back. Don't do it. 
I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, it's been an unbelievable ride. I- I'll tell you exactly what it is. Trust your gut. I have had a couple of incidents where I wanted to make a certain decision, but I analyzed it. I looked at it on a sheet of paper. I overthought it and I made the decision based on my brain instead of my gut feel that usually, in my experience, is the best informed way to make a tough call. Is that maybe like an inner voice or something that we all have? Like when we're thinking about the gut, you know, like maybe there's something that is off that maybe doesn't sound so clear that you have some questions that are still unresolved or, or, or how would you make that be a little bit more tangible for the folks that are listening, many, many entrepreneurs that are listening to this episode, what does maybe, you know, trusting and listening to that gut feeling look like when we put it into a pragmatic approach? I'll give you a real world example and we can sort of drill it from there rather than being theoretical. Okay. Fluid, fluid trade in the early days, we acquired a technology company. With that, we brought in the CTO. The CTO at that point, maybe two or three weeks after acquisition, left me a sticky note and said he was resigning. And I looked at that and I talked with my partner and we said, we, our, our gut feel was let him go. This is, this is what should happen. Uh, but our brain analyzed it and said, but we've got investors. The optics aren't going to be right. Who's going to build this? All of these other things that we had to unpack um, as to what made sense on paper. Um, and without going into too much detail, it was the wrong choice by a, by a landslide. Wow. Well, thank you for, for sharing that, Chris. So for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? That is a great question. I would say I will give you a fun little email address that folks can feel free to reach out to me on. And that is chris at randytime. Dot com. So R-A-N-D-Y-T-I-M-E dot com. Chris at Randy Time. Fantastic. And are, do you have uh, any type of social game going on on Twitter or LinkedIn or anything like that? I'm certainly on LinkedIn. I have not been a member of the Twittersphere at this point, but uh, perhaps given the, the president-elect, I may, uh, I may switch and uh, <laughs> get, get a little bit more into that world. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, Chris, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you so much for chatting with me here. I really enjoyed it. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.